Amen. Well, good morning. So glad you're with us this morning. Uh, you know, I, this is, I'm still reeling really from last Sunday. It was such an awesome day to have our students leading us. Wasn't that, wasn't that a great day? And uh, it was just a beautiful time of worship. They led us so well. Hayden did such a great job. Our student pastor did such a great job teaching. Um, two more baptisms, giving us 12 baptisms in three weeks. Um, commissioning four groups. It's just my heart was full of what God is doing in our body and uh, in you. And this is, uh, it was just a beautiful time together. I'm kind of, Hayden and I are kind of tag teaming that text from last week. So it really kind of is one text. Hayden took the first half, and this morning I'm going to take the second half, all right? So we're going to be in our, in our series in Mark in chapter 9. We're going to try and finish the uh, chapter today. Let me give you just a little context because it makes sense as to where we're going, just a kind of a reminder of the things that he mentioned to us last Sunday. A few of the things you might remember is that Jesus and his disciples were, were walking somewhere. They were walking to Capernaum. And they were in an argument, and they get to where they're going, probably Peter's house in Capernaum, and they're sitting there, and maybe they even forgot that they were arguing about who was the most important, who was the greatest, who was going to have, have power, right? Um, this ego-driven conversation, and Jesus says, hey, guys, what were you talking about on the road? Dead silence. <laughs> Have you ever done that when somebody asks you something and it kind of convicts your heart? You're just kind of like, right? It's just, you, you sense the shame. You sense, you know, this, this was a sinful conversation. And I, I, I'm not really proud of it. And now I don't really want to speak to it. <laughs> so they don't say a thing. And Jesus begins to help them understand that, that that disagreement, that argument was a sinful one. It was, as Hayden talked about last week, it was one that was about pride and title and position. And the reality is, is you can't promote yourself without demoting somebody else. And that's what Jesus was sensing. And so he began to teach them some things. And he's done this so many different times in the, in the Gospels, but he turns something on its head. He does that again. He did it last week in, in Hayden's teaching. And when he says, listen, guys, you don't understand. The first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, he's speaking of kingdom economy. Right, so in the kingdom, the first will be the ones who served. They're the very last ones. It's not about them. They're on their knees washing feet. They're caring for people. They're, they're doing the mission of Jesus. That's what, they're going to be the very first ones in the kingdom. The last ones are the ones like you guys asking who's going to have the power and the position and the title. So Jesus has turned, again, this, this idea on its head, and he's calling them to humility. He's calling them to understand that they've been sinful and prideful. He's calling them to serve one another. He's also, remember he grabbed a little, a little child as an example and said, receive these. And so he's trying to say, receive uh, believers who maybe aren't as far along as you, as you. Maybe immature believers, just receive them and welcome them as if you're welcoming me or the Father. So it's a beautiful lesson and it really sets up where we're going, because Jesus now is going to get a little more um, stern in his tone, stronger tone, stronger um, lesson, if you will, and rebuke, even if you will. Look with me in your Bibles, Mark nine. We're going to read 49, 42 through fifty. 
on the screen if you have your Bibles. It says this, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than uh, with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Let's pray this morning. Father God, thank you for your word. God, thank you that as we teach and we do our best to teach verse by verse, we don't get a say in what the topic is of the day. <laughs> we don't get to pick and choose the, the text that we um, will avoid or deal with. God, today you've given us a difficult text. A text that causes us really to look within ourselves at the ugly pieces and the ugly parts of who we are. Lord, would you help us to be faithful to do that? Help us to see the sinfulness in our own hearts and help us to take drastic measures to obey you, to love you, to serve you, and to get that out of our lives. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us. And I, I thank you for your grace that covers all of our sin. Praise you, Lord, for that truth and that gospel. God, I pray that, that you would do what only you can do, that you would lead us to all truth now in your word, that you would help me, Lord, to uh, decrease and that you, Father, would increase in our time and that we would humbly seek what you would teach us and that you'd give us the courage to be obedient to what you ask us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you didn't figure it out, this text this morning is about sin, right? <laughs> Yay, let's talk about sin. <laughs> it's, it's not a, an easy topic sometimes to talk about sin. Sometimes it's not an easy top, topic to look within ourselves and go, Where, where's the issue in my life? What are the things that I need to look at? I was thinking about sin and the reality that if you know Jesus as your Savior, your relationship with Jesus has to start with you, at least in some small way, seeing your sin the way God does, right? That you are sinful and that you need to be forgiven. There, there's this built-in humility in coming to know Jesus. You can't know Jesus without humbling yourself and saying, Lord, I need you. I need to be forgiven and you're my only hope. Lord Jesus, forgive me, change me, redeem me, right? And so there's this automatic humility of seeing our sin the way God does. Now what happens is over time, and what has happened in our text this morning with the disciples, is that it really probably happens right after you go under the water and you come out. You know, we, we've had all these baptisms, and I promise you, most of these people who've been baptized, they've come out of the water and they're, they're excited. They feel like a million bucks. And it's probably about the time they reach the top of the stairs that they start struggling with sin. 
right? I mean, we know Jesus, he's redeemed our souls, and yet we walk in the reality of the fallenness of this world. Yes, we're changed, yes, we're redeemed, but we have to deal with this very real issue of sinfulness in our lives, in our hearts, in our minds. Paul calls this a body of death because we walk in this sinfulness. Even though our souls are cleansed, 1 John 1, 9 says we're purified, renewed, justified as if we've never sinned before. And yet we have to walk in the reality that this is a body of death. Our souls have been forgiven. Price has been paid by Jesus. And yet we're still living in a world of sin. So we find ourselves in this struggle. We still fall, still wrestle with pridefulness, argue with one another, still deal with ego and all the things that come with pride. This is the scene that that Jesus is speaking to. Remember, John had asked a question. So Jesus may be speaking to John. He's answering John's question, if you will, in some way. But the, the context here is still pride. It's still this sinful argument, this sinful situation that uh, they've come out of. But you hear, you hear the tone of Jesus just gets more serious and cautionary. And so some of the tone this morning will be more serious and cautionary because that's what he's doing with his disciples. And we want to just carry that on to us as his disciples. The title of the message this morning is The Tempter and the tempted, and the problem is you can be both. And what we're gonna see is if we, if we allow sin in our lives to a certain degree, at some point it gets to a place where not only have you sinned, you can lead other people into sin. That's the first thing that Jesus begins to make them aware of. Look at verse 42. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone that were hung, hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Okay, Jesus. What a horrifying, scary idea. If you lead someone into sin, and, and again, he's got this, this uh, example of this child. He's not talking about children. He's talking about his children, people who believe in him. If you lead somebody who believes in him to sin, that is not a good thing, and you need to be careful Jesus is using these examples uh, of hyperbole, but he's trying to get our attention. This is a serious reality. You know, I've heard people refer to this verse about the millstone when it comes to televangelists or who are evil and maybe just wanting your money. And you know, I've heard this verse applied to those folks. I've heard this verse applied to uh, child pornographers or people who would abuse a child or hurt a child. You know, and I can't help but sort of shake my head a little bit in some of those realities. But that's not who Jesus is speaking to in this moment, is it? Who's he speaking to? His disciples. The context is the disciples. And so Jesus is trying to get their attention here. But one of the things that we see in this text is we we begin to see a reflection of the heart of God as a protector, as a fierce defender of his people, right? That's what he's kind of helping us to see. In essence, he's saying, my children, not just children, but my children, if they believe in me, they're my children. Don't lead them astray. Don't lead them to sinfulness. That's not a good thing. God has been a defender of his people from the beginning. Uh, Genesis 12, right, he tells Abraham, I'm gonna bless uh, 
who you bless, but I'm also going to curse who you curse. They better not mess with you, right? Psalm 105, don't touch my anointed ones. Don't harm my prophets. I love the story of Acts 9 where Saul is on his way to Damascus to pull men and women out of their homes and children out of their homes, and yet he's stopped by Jesus, right? He falls down, he's blinded. Jesus says, why do you persecute me? Saul says, who are you? Because he can't see, he's blinded. Who are you, Lord? Jesus says, I'm Jesus. But had, had Saul been persecuting Jesus? No. He had been persecuting the church. But the way Jesus sees his church is as if it's himself. We are called his hands and feet, the body of Christ. And Jesus takes it so seriously, he tells Saul, you've persecuted me. And that's a problem. God is a fierce defender of his people. I also love a little different context, but I also love Matthew 25. It's a kind of a scary passage, interesting passage. But again, we see the heart of the Father that, that God wants to protect the lowly. He wants to protect the powerless. He would even say, and so of course we, we see in that text, when you serve the least of these you do it as unto who? Me. When you care for these people, you're doing it as unto me. So Jesus is this fierce defender. And he warns his disciples of leading anyone into temptation or sinfulness. That maybe their conversation about ego and pride was sinful. And maybe it was making some other people begin to think, yeah, what is my position going to be? Yeah, what are we going to get out of this deal? I am pretty important, right? We cannot lead people into sinfulness. I want to tell you, I've mentioned this before. Sin has this sort of downward vortex. It's this downward spiral. It, it can start sort of innocent in a way. It's not that big of a deal. In fact, Romans 1, I've mentioned this, starts with not being thankful. Oh, gosh, goodness, I've been not thankful several times. Right, But if you follow the downward vortex, the downward progression of sin, you can go from not being thankful to all of a sudden some pretty significant sin in your life. And it just goes from there down. You keep going down. It gets worse and worse and worse. And before you know it, you've lost your way. I had a dear friend come to me back when I was in Nashville and pastoring. And, and one of our guys came to me and he said, he got in the car and he sat down next to me, dear friend. He just started weeping. And I look over at him and I said, what's going on? Are you okay? He said, no, I'm not. He said, I've really messed up. I mean, he's just bawling, pouring his, his eyes are pouring tears. I said, what is happening? He said, I've really, really messed up. I had an affair with someone at work. And this has been going on for a little while and I haven't told you. I've messed up. And I wept with him. And it was interesting in that moment as we were talking and praying. I said, brother, how did this happen? Did it just happen one day on a whim? He's like, of course not. It happened with a little word here or there. It happened with a, a, a phone call. It happened with a private chat. It happened with a, a short meeting. It happened with a small touch. It, it all doesn't happen in one instance. It happens in a downward progression. 
that we allow into our lives. And before you know it, you lose your way. So don't allow the things at the top of the funnel and you won't find yourself at the bottom. I heard a, an interview with, uh, what was his name? Jeffrey Dahmer. Remember that name? Really horrible mass murderer. And, and somebody asked him the question, how did you get here? Cannibalism and horrible murder. Unspeakable evil. He said it started with porn. It started with porn. It started with small decisions, small selfishness, small sinfulness in my life. And it began to lead to bigger sinfulness. That's what the enemy wants to do in our lives. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy your life. And when we allow little sins into our lives, we're opening up the door to the next one, the next level, the next evil. That's how the enemy works. And here Jesus is addressing not letting our sin get to the place where all of a sudden now we're causing other people to sin. But then he changes and speaks to the temptation itself. Verse 43. He says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Uh, it's better for you to enter life crippled with two hands than to go to hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. What a terrifying, scary sort of example that Jesus is using here. The first thing we need to understand is every human being is tempted. Every human being is tempted, right? Look at 1 Corinthians 10, 13. It says, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. All mankind is tempted, but the beauty of being a believer in Jesus is that he gives us help in that moment of temptation. He helps us out. He says, God is faithful and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Christian, when you are walking in the spirit, you'll recognize the escape route. When there's something in your life and you're walking with Jesus in humility and you're seeking him, it won't be that you're not tempted. You will always be tempted. But the Father gives us a way out, helps us find a way to get out of that situation when we choose him and we walk in him. We need to understand, like I said a minute ago, Jesus is using hyperbole. Right? These are hyperbolic statements to get their attention. Jesus is not commanding us to cut off our hands or feet and pluck out our eyes. Because, can I just tell you, if we did, we would all have no feet, no hands, and no eyes this morning if we were obedient to him, right? That's the reality. He's not calling us to do that. We know that because Deuteronomy, I think it's 14, speaks about not cutting yourself. Right? We see the prophets of Baal on the mountain cutting themselves. That's a, a, God, a dishonoring thing to do. So that, Jesus wouldn't dishonor the Father by telling us to do something that would dishonor the Father. He's trying to get our attention. That's what he's trying to do. In fact, we just studied in Mark 7 the fact that it's not the, the hand or the feet or the eyes that cause us to sin. It's the 
heart, right? Mark 7, verse 20 says, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from your hands, your feet, or your eyes? No. They come from within. That's what defiles a person, Jesus says. Sin comes from the heart. I like the way that this writer Sam Storms in his book, Be Killing Sin, says very little, if any, sin comes out of our heart that didn't first enter through our eyes. Our external members are but the instruments we employ to gratify the lust that emerges from within. What our Lord was advocating, therefore, to quote John Stott, was not a literal, physical self-maiming, but a ruthless, moral self-denial. Not mutilation, but mortification. That we die to ourselves. That is the path of holiness that he taught. This is what Jesus is referring to. So why would Jesus use such a gruesome example? I mean, it's just, even to think of it is a horrifying example. Why? What he's trying to say is, when he mentions our hands, it's about the things that we do. When he mentions our feet, it's about the places that our feet carry us. When he mentions our eyes, it's about the things we allow our eyes to see. If there's something that you do, some place that you go, something that you're seeing with your eye that causes you to sin, cut it out. Get serious about it. It's not the hand that needs to come off, it's the sin that needs to stop. That's what Jesus is trying to help us understand in this moment. He's saying, get serious, friends, about your sin. The reality is, you have it. <laughs> Praise God, we are freed from it. Praise God that Jesus' finished work on the cross has taken care of it, but you still have to deal with it. Let's get serious about it. Can I just ask you this question? I mentioned that we have to see our sin the way God does to be saved. Right? Do you notice it anymore? Does sin shock you anymore? Or is there a section of your life that you just kind of allow it to live? Friends, it cannot be to be a believer in Jesus that, that's why this is so important. You know what, I, again, I'll say this about the disciples. Sometimes they're not that bright, and I'm thankful because I'm often not that bright. And here, just think about this. 13 people traveling on the road with Jesus, the holy of holies, right? They've seen him calm the storms, cast out demons. They've, they've heard the demons say, the son of God, the most high. And yet they're over here arguing in prideful sinfulness, just like six feet away. We do the same, don't we? We know that God is with us and yet we sometimes walk in this lack of awareness of the sinfulness of our lives. Friends, can I just ask you, is there something you're doing that is sinful? Is there something that you're doing 
that is sinful? Is there something, some place that you're going that leads you to sinfulness? Is there something you're allowing your eyes to see that causes sinfulness? Can I tell you? Get rid of it. Cut it out. Get serious. Jesus is so serious about this in this moment. Because what he's saying is, this will lead you to greater sinfulness and you'll cause someone else to sin. And that's a horrible, horrible thing. Jesus is even saying here, listen, sin is bad, but when this is a massive part of your life, it literally represents somebody who doesn't care about God. Somebody, in fact, who's going to hell. Did you notice all the, the hell references in this text? By the way, Jesus speaks more about hell than anybody else in the Bible. And in these few short verses, Jesus gives seven references to hell. Either hell itself or a description of hell. Jesus is saying, and I want you to hear this. If you are consistently engaging in habitual, unrepentant sin, and it's not something that even touches or affects your heart, you probably don't know Jesus as your Savior. If you're involved in habitual, this is ongoing, this is a part of my life, it's a habit, and I don't care what anybody thinks about it. Unrepentant. Friend, you need to check your heart. Do you know Jesus as your Savior? Please, this morning, let the, the, the cautionary tone of Jesus waken you today. He says this behavior is like somebody headed to hell, not somebody who is in Christ. Because if you're in Christ, Paul tells us we've put on Christ. Romans 13, 14 says, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Put on Christ. Sinfulness should be no part of our lives. It should be an ongoing reality that we're fighting it. If we love the Lord, we obey his commands, he tells us. Jesus is helping his disciples here understand sin so, and Paul puts this in this phrase, sin so easily entangles, doesn't it? It so easily finds its way into our lives, even in a way of just not being thankful and forgetting or not, not valuing something like that. And before you know it, you're allowing other things in your life. I'm just going to watch this one movie. I'm just going to look at this one thing. I'm just going to go to this one place this one time. And we allow this open door of sinfulness to come into our lives. Friends, can I just tell you, God has called us to fight temptation and sin. Fight it. Is there an active fight in your life against sin? I want, I want you to ask yourself, what, what is the fight in my life? What is the sin that I struggle with? And if in this moment you go, let's see, I don't really think I have us. I don't really think I have a sin I struggle with. Do you know Jesus? Because every believer struggles with sin. It's the reality of this side of heaven. We struggle. We battle against it. Yes, there are moments and seasons of our lives we can be unaware of sin. I think about a hero of mine, David. Right? King David. Such an amazing man of God after God's own heart. And what happened to David? First of all, in a time when he should be out at war leading, he gets lazy and stays home. See, it seems like not that big of a deal. A king maybe should stay in the castle. But what happens is the one sin leads to the next, and before you know it, he's peering over the top of his tallest wall, and he sees Bathsheba, 
And then he goes and sins for Bathsheba and he basically rapes her. Sinning against her and her husband and her family. And before you know, before you know it, he kills her husband. Right? There's this unbelievable season of lack of awareness in David's life until Nathan comes along and says, tells him the story. And it wakes David up from his slumber, from his blind apathy. And he, and he gets back to his heart and he realizes, I'm that man. I'm the killer. I'm the murderer. I'm the adulterer. I'm the sinner. And he realizes his greatest offense is not even against Uriah or Bathsheba. It's against the Lord. There are seasons in our lives, friends, where as believers we sort of get calloused in our hearts. There are struggles that we walk with, but the question I'm asking you, do you struggle? Do you have an ongoing fight? We need to be a fighting people against sin because it's real in our lives. The question is, how goes the fight? Here Jesus is calling us to radical discipleship. You know what South City wants to call you to? Radical discipleship. But can I, let me show you something. Radical discipleship requires radical obedience. And radical obedience requires drastic measures. Jesus in this moment got the attention of the disciples, don't you think? <laughs> requires drastic measures. So what are the drastic measures that God is calling you to? Let me give you some examples. Maybe you need to change some settings on your phone. Maybe you need an internet filter on your phone. Maybe you need uh, an accountability partner that sees all your texts, that sees all the websites that you go to. Maybe you need to humble yourself and bring somebody in to help you address and deal with your sin. Maybe you need to get rid of some friends. There was a season in my life as a junior in high school, the Lord was calling me to, to love him more than anyone else calling me to, to care more about what he thinks than what other people think. And in my senior year of all years, I had to tell a whole group of people, I can't be with you anymore. I can't go drink that anymore. I can't go do that anymore. I gotta, be, I gotta honor the Lord with my life. And it meant for my senior year in high school that I pretty much had to walk without a whole lot of friends. Oh, but I had Jesus and I had more than enough. You might need to cut some things out. Cut some things off and get serious and drastic about your relationship with Jesus. You might have to stop watching some television shows. You might have to make some decisions to say, you know what, I need accountability. I can't do this on my own. And can I just tell you, some of the things that we're doing even as a church is to help move us towards this. Something the traditional church has not done a, a wonderful job at is accountability and life-on-life relationships. Sometimes we can come to a service, we can check in, and then check back out and never really walk life with people. We want to move people to life-on-life -life discipleship, relationship, accountability. James 5.16 says, confess your sins one to another so that you may be healed. Guess what? You're probably not going to make confession of your sin unless you're truly in relationship with somebody. I don't know if anybody's walked into the service this morning and walked up to somebody and said, hey, I need to tell you about my sin. Can I, can I confess some sin? It doesn't happen apart from relationship, friends. So we need to be about walking in the one another's of Scripture.
That's what the church is. That's what the church does. That's who we need to be. Hebrews 10 says, spur one another on to love and good works. Like that, that's a relational challenge. That's calling one another out, loving one another so much, Ephesians 4, that we speak truth in love to one another. Say, this is not the best thing for your life. And Paul says in Ephesians 4, it is that speaking truth and love that builds the body up into the maturity of Jesus. That's why we want to make changes. God's calling us to take seriously our lives in Christ and get serious about eliminating things that cause us to stumble. What causes you to stumble? Right now in your heart, what are the things that even the Holy Spirit is drawing you too, in your heart and in your mind. Lastly, I want to just mention this because it's such a prevalent piece of our text, and that is the references of hell. Jesus references hell seven times in nine verses. He mentions uh, some aspects of hell. There's an unquenchable fire. It's also a place where the worm doesn't die. If if that's not the stuff of nightmares, I don't know what is. For real. That's horrible. It's horrible. I've not had major burns, but I've had small burns. That's enough. I don't want any more of that. And I don't like worms. Jesus is warning us. And you know what's beautiful about the love of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus? You don't have to go there. We stand in a moment of grace in this moment right now. You're listening to my voice. If you don't know Jesus, surrender your life to him so that you don't go to this place, this very real place that wasn't even created for you. The Bible tells us it was created for Satan and his demons. It wasn't created for you. And yet, for you to walk away from here to not make a decision to follow Jesus, to not choose him to be your savior is a decision of selfishness and lack of faith. And if you don't know Christ and you die today, you will die and go to hell. Friends, Jesus gives this caution, and I would too, please. Please. Please see the truth of God's word. Repent of your sins today and come know this Savior. Last two verses, Mark says, 49, for everyone will be salted with fire. It says, salt is good, but if the salt loses, uh, has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. What I think is being spoken here, this is kind of a hard thing to interpret and, and to understand, but I think when he says everyone will be salted with fire, there's a reality that we're talking about eternal fire versus refining fire. If you don't know Jesus as your Savior, you will one day be in an eternal fire. If you do know Jesus, then as believers, we have to walk through a refining fire and a testing every day, struggling, seeking the Lord wanting to know him, following him. 1 Peter 1.7 speaks of this refining fire because the truth is fire purifies 
and salt preserves. We walk through fires and tests, but the beauty of those fires is that on the other side, God is creating in us the presence of Jesus. And that presence of Jesus preserves the people around you. It's like light and darkness. We, we take the presence of Jesus to our family and we go, oh, all that we're dealing with is not all this sinfulness. No, I'm here and I'm bringing the presence of Jesus like salt that flavors a meal or salt that preserves some type of food. This is what Jesus is saying. Everyone will be salted with fire. Sinclair Ferguson, theologian, says, unless we maintain the purity of our own lives, plucking out the eye, etc., and are purified by the flames of testing and remain faithful to Christ, our lives will have no preserving influence on this corrupt world. We have to seek the Lord in his holiness. We have to remove sin from our lives for radical obedience and discipleship. And sometimes we have to take great drastic measures to honor him and say no to some things so that we can say yes to the master. I love how Jesus in the very last part of the verse gives us our first application of being salty, right? He says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. I don't know if you remember that commercial where the guy said, stay salty, my friends. Remember that? Jesus is saying here, stay salty, my friends. Have the presence of Jesus in your life. Don't look just like the world. The parallel passage, I think in Luke, talks about this text. It talks about if salt loses its saltiness, then it is thrown out and trampled underfoot. In other words, it's useless. It's, it might as well be dirt or rock. If your life has no effect on people, on the world, is not preserving the world, is not bringing the presence of Jesus to bear, then it's useless. Friends, I want to just call us to life in Christ. I want to call us to seriousness about the sin in your life and fighting against that sin. Don't let your sin cause others to sin. Sin brings death. Make no mistake. Sin opens a door into your life that will lead you into a downward vortex that is no good, I promise you. So take extreme measures to honor Jesus with your life, to cut off the things that dishonor him. And stay salty, receive one another, Jesus says. Love one another, serve one another, be at peace with one another because it's that that preserves the presence of Jesus in our church, in your home, in your school, in your work. Stay salty. Keep the presence of Jesus wherever you go. And let's get serious about honoring the Lord with everything we have and all that we are. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your truth. God, thank you for the miraculous and most beautiful truth of the gospel. That we don't have to die and go to hell. Praise you, Lord. If that doesn't make you sing or weep 
or shout, God, I don't know what will. We don't have to go to hell. You have made a way by the gospel of Jesus for us to know you and love you. And even in our temptation, God, you provide your people a way out of temptation to honor you and keep us from the downward spiral of addiction and brokenness. And Lord, you know, even if we've allowed that downward spiral to capture us, even if today we find ourselves at the bottom of the barrel, barely hanging on to life, you say, I love you, and even while you're a sinner, I love you. There's no one too far, God. There's no one who's made too many mistakes, who turned you away too many times. God, you love, and you say, come. If there's one person here today that needs to come and fall at this altar, fall on their knees, fall before you, Lord Jesus, and say, save me and change me, God, will they do it today in your mercy and in this moment of grace? Today is the day of salvation. Let that be the, the case and the truth of their lives. And as believers, Lord, give us a seriousness in our hearts to love you with our lives to let us be a people of integrity and character that even when no one is looking, we take that escape. Even when no one is looking, we know you're looking, you're with us. And this body of death is really a temple of the Holy Spirit and we wanna honor you with it. Jesus, do a work in us. Teach us, draw us to yourself. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and wonderful name.